wherever there are shadows, there are people ready to kick at the darkness until it bleeds daylight. This is Bleeding Daylight with your host, Rodney Olson. Welcome to Bleeding Daylight. Please connect with us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. And don't forget to share episodes with others. Due to technical issues beyond our control, the audio in this episode is less than perfect. But my guest's story more than makes up for that. She is an incredible woman. And I know that through this episode, you'll laugh, you'll cry, and you'll enjoy getting to know her. Laura Paget faced the pointing fingers of those who considered her to be unworthy. In her younger years, she was excluded and experienced a very difficult upbringing. Life certainly changed for Laura, and she spent many years opening the door to others who faced discrimination and exclusion. She's an author, speaker, dancer, and podcaster who shares stories of inspiration and transformation. I'm so pleased that she can join us on Bleeding Daylight. Laura, welcome. Thank you, Rod. Thank you for allowing me to talk with your audience. I want to take you back to those difficult growing up years. Tell me what life was like for you in those early years. I talk about this with the greatest affection for my parents, but unfortunately, they suffered from the disease of alcoholism. That disease rendered them rather incapable of being parents. I mean, they were mechanical parents. They went through the motions. Emotionally, it was just simply not something they could avail themselves of. And I was not brought up in a home where any kind of religious foundation was part of it. It just wasn't. Without going into a great deal of detail, my father also suffered PTSD from his early years, uh, his younger years when he fought in World War II in Northern Africa on the front lines. That lent him into tremendous amounts of temper outbursts. So he was brutal, certainly for my mom. And so as kids grew up, witnessing domestic violence, and often for us as well, what would be considered abuse today. He passed away when I was 16, and my mother just sort of drifted away. So my sisters and I were kind of on our own from when I was about 16, 17 years old. And I went to college and uh, didn't do very well there. And then when I came home, Um, Back from Fort Collins, Colorado, where I was in college, my life was just floating from day to day to day, Ron. I just wanted to survive. and, And the only way I knew how to do that was to work, try to find solace in the same things where my parents had imbibed, and that would be alcohol and drugs. Because my parents were what we would consider a mixed marriage, (laughs) Religiously, my father was of one faith that did not accept divorcees. My mother was of another faith, and she was divorced. So us kids were not considered, us little girls were not considered legitimate. And therefore, we had no place in God's kingdom, according to the people who apparently uh, were the gatekeepers in those days. In those early years, you mentioned sisters. How many were in the family? There were three uh, girls all together. I'm the middle. The older sister was two years older, and the younger was about 15 months younger. So actually, I think we were all 15 months apart. When did you realize that the sort of environment you were in was not normal? 
I think I knew there was something sort of, as my favorite detective Sherlock Holmes would say, there was something afoot. But I think that was only when I would go to some other friend's house to stay with them overnight and their parents didn't fight and drink and there was a furniture crashing. And so I began to understand that maybe something wasn't right in my family. But I can't tell you, because my father died when I was young, he had a malignant brain tumor, which was another trauma to watch him die for a year of that and not understand what was going on. That was all service connected from his years in the service as well. You know, it wasn't when I was a young person. It was when I became independent, which was at probably age 18, 19. And I just wanted out. I just wanted to get out like so many kids in those situations, but I didn't have any place to run to. So I I, I can't tell you about normalcy. I had nothing to compare my life to other than understanding when there was some sort of an invitation elsewhere to get me out of that. What about the other people surrounding you? I mentioned in the introduction that there were those who wanted to exclude you. And I recognize that some of that comes from that that mixture of a, a family that believed in divorce and a family that didn't. And yep. you're the product of that. Who were the people that were pointing fingers in those days? Uh, the people that were pointing fingers were when my father took us to his church to say, these are my children. I want them confirmed in this faith. And they said, no. Absolutely not. These kids are not legitimate. We can't welcome them into God's kingdom. They basically spiritually don't exist. And I heard that. I would think I was probably 10 or 11. Those words are still very intense if I focus on them. I do talk about that in my first book, uh, where I talk about my conversion and how hard it was to get beyond that. As far as socially goes, I I really don't think, Rod, that I hung out with people who didn't accept me. I hung out with people who were like me. You know, we were partying, man. We were having a good time. We were having a good life as far as we knew. With that ringing in your ears from that very young age, I'm wondering how you started that transition to, to start to believe that actually you were accepted by God. Well, I had a Damascus experience when I was 26 years old, 26 or 27. I actually moved out of Denver, Colorado, which is where I was born and raised, and moved over to the Western Slope, which interestingly enough is where I live now. It's a little town called Montrose. And I mean, I just ran out screaming. I just had to get away because my father was gone. My mother was um, actively drinking and creating a lot of legal troubles that I just couldn't I couldn't have supported anymore. So when I was about 25, 26, I had already trained in the operating room as an OR tech. So I had jobs wherever I wanted to go. And I just came over here to this little town. I I saw an ad in the what we call trade rag. And I think I hung out here probably for about a year. Different people somehow would come to me and start talking to me about this God guy. And I was like, yeah, uh-huh. you talk about leading daylight. Eventually, there was a gentleman that I met who was very nice to me, but would always come over and just just hang out with me, just have beers and maybe a cigarette. And we'd sit there and talk. And then one night, he too started talking to me about 
this Jesus guy. And I'd already had several friends who tried to introduce this to me. I was, I just was livid. I said, that's it. I'm done. Out, get out. I screamed at him and let him know that, you know, he had really crossed the line. You know, he left a Bible on my table and he walked out. And he was a just a, a lovely man. And I just was fuming. Rod, I was fuming. I was flying around my house like a, just a wild woman. And I went to bed that night and had a dream. I remember screaming right before I went to bed, whoever you are, Jesus, God, whoever you are, you know nothing about pain. You know nothing about rejection. You know nothing about nothing. And I went to bed, and that night I had a, a horrible dream where I could feel such intense pain in my wrists and my feet. I woke up just, well, I thought I was having a heart attack. And I got up and went out in the living room, and I had left a light on. And at that light stand, there was that Bible that this man left. I remember his last words to me before he left my home was, they were, just ask. So I sat down. And I read and I asked and I still wasn't convinced. I read the book of John until dawn and I still wasn't convinced. So because God had given me friends around me, I began to ask them, well, you know, who is this dude? I talk about in the book where I tried to return the Bible, couldn't find the guy. No one had ever heard of him. No one had ever seen him. Uh, talk about thinking you're just about ready for the farm for the bewildered. I mean, I was like, whoa, never did find him. But I started asking other friends. And eventually, after attending different churches and things, which was another thing, you can imagine how I felt about going to church. But after doing that for a while, one night, I just actually it was a morning time I sat down and just started crying and saying okay this dude's real okay I was probably 27 maybe 28 so that was when I knew he's real and he wants me and he's gone to a lot of trouble so you know you really have to give the guy credit whoever he was you know and I, I remember looking at a friend of mine one time, and you have to understand, Rod, that the home I came from was a Sicilian-American man and an Irish-Italian woman. And Sicilians in Colorado were not considered white people until probably sometime in the 70s, 80s. There are a lot of reasons that people do those things. They're horrible, but that's the way it was. So I remember yelling at one friend prior to when I accepted Jesus, and you want me to believe some white guy on a cross cares about me? <laughs> of course, now we know Jesus was not a white man, but uh, very far from it, actually. But the fact is, I could never believe this guy could want me. And it was that one statement, you know, the gatekeeper said, mm -mm, not you. So that was that. But when I did accept him, I met a woman named Dolores in one of the churches I attended, and she was 65 years old, and I was 26 or 27 in there. And it was Dolores who brought me through dismissing the lies, getting me into recovery from the effects of alcoholism, teaching me how to forgive, and teaching me I was forgiven. 
it's interesting that you still had to go through that process because we we often think that people come to know Jesus and then life is just wonderful. But we know that that's not the case. No. Tell me a little of that that journey that you had to go on from that moment of saying, okay, this Jesus guy is real. I'm prepared to admit that. I'm prepared to accept that he's chasing me down. What was the process after that for you? It's still going on, isn't it? I mean, every day things are changing in my uh, heart, my soul, and my personal spiritual inventories that I try to take daily. I think that in the immediate time, It was my support system of my church, my two best friends who are also Christians, who are also here in Montrose, so we see each other, and Dolores and her husband, Trevor, and their insistence that no matter what, I belonged. And I talk in in my first book about going to their house for a Bible study. Having Dolores invite me to help serve tea and see, I always... My fa- in my family of origin, my older sister was absolutely gorgeous. I, I read she was a head turner. She really was. Uh, she still is. And my little sister was very shy and kind of lived in the basement, honestly. And I was the constant trying to please everybody. So I was the honor student. I was the pom-pom girl. I was the national honor society captain. I was, I was, I was. My grades were okay, but more it was important to try to find a place I fit in. So that transferred into my walk, still trying to fit in with what other people thought and what other people prescripted for me to be. So I that was a long journey, learning how to say, I'm okay the way I am. I need work. Oh, boy, who doesn't? But understanding that the opinions of even the righteous, as they may see themselves, they're not necessarily relevant to what God says about me. And Dolores helped me to see that. I went through a bad marriage and a divorce. I married someone that Dolores and Trevor said, "Mm, I don't know about this. I had a child. And it ended in in a divorce and a lot of pain, a lot of resentment, but still trying to find my way through and still having this anchor of a woman who kept sending me scripture and kept, you know, by then I'd moved back to Denver. So I I wasn't really with my lifeline people. It, It was a journey. It was a tough, tough time, even after I came to know God. And Jesus, I had to let go of what the world was telling me in order to embrace what Jesus was telling me. But I'd lived so long in shame. I'd lived so long in blame. I'd lived so long in not enough. And at that moment that you decided, yeah, Jesus is real, Mm. there's this sense of being accepted, which is something that you'd obviously always been searching for. But how long did it take for that to actually drop from the head to the heart for you to finally realize, actually, yeah, he does accept me no matter what? The only answer I can give you is an honest one. And that is from time to time, I still slip into it, Rod. I still slip into the people pleasing, the perfectionism. And that comes from growing up in the effects of alcoholism. That comes from the effects of growing up 
seeing your father beat your mother. That comes from the effects of believing that the next step I take could be my last, a wrong one, always wrong. So to dismantle that thinking, you know, it isn't surgery. You can't just go in and have all that stuff removed. So I can't pinpoint a moment. I can only tell you that as I walked and continued to stay in communication with God to find a way to make him manifest in my life in ways that maybe were not necessarily accepted by a lot of people. Another area where I pioneered and sort of fought a battle in spirituality is in the art of sacred dance. That is an art that is so minimally understood in our world, certainly in in America. There are a lot of people doing it now, but when I started doing it, no, it was not accepted. So it was more rejection saying, God just doesn't like dancing. So that was hard. And I had to hang with people who believe differently. And I had to continue to listen to God say, get up, dance. And I did. And I have for 30 years. And I've been from Anaheim to Ottawa (laughs) doing just that teaching and, and, and praising God in movement. So it's just a process and it continues. And I am certainly assured today of his love. I'm assured today of my need every day to be in his word and, and in his will. I don't suffer now the rejection, but I'm 70 years old, Rod. It takes a little time. I'm wondering about the the sacred dance that you mentioned there. I said in the introduction that you're a dancer. That's Take right. us through that journey. What what drew you into that? And tell us a little about it. You say that it wasn't generally accepted, and I no. would imagine that there's still people who say, oh, I'm not sure about that. That's I'll right. Just understand a little about it. Okay. Well, first of all, I had always danced in clubs and stuff. Okay. So dance has been a big part of my life, but my people could never afford lessons. So when I finally could afford dance lessons, I was Christian now, but I didn't know there was anything of sacred dance. I decided I was going to go take dance class. And because of my Celtic roots, I went and took Irish step dance. And I was in my 40s when I first put on those shoes and I danced and I danced and I danced, I competed and I performed. There was always something missing. You know, I also did tap and clogging and different forms of dance because now I could afford to fulfill this dream of this art. I wanted to learn. One day I was actually teaching a class down in downtown Denver and this teacher came over to me. Well, I was taking a class of tap with her. And she watched my movements and she said, you're an Irish step dancer. I said, yes, I am. And we have a real different way of doing things. If you watch a tap dancer and you watch an Irish step dancer, you'll see a great deal of difference. And she caught it right away. She said, would you teach a class here? And I said, well, all right then. So I taught a wee class and she came up after the class had finished, six-week class, and I said to her, I said, Miss B, I said, you know, I just am so missing something in dance or something not right. It doesn't feel full. My, my, I just don't feel full. She said, well, what do you think you'd like to do, Laura? And I said, oh, I love Jesus. I'd love to dance, praise dance. And she said, well, I have somebody for you, because it turned out she was a Christian 
too. And she belonged to a thing called the Sacred Dance Guild in the Rocky Mountain region. So she sent me up to Boulder. And I went up there, a group called Grace and Glory, in a charismatic church, a church where they did do dance. And I learned. I learned from two women who had been doing it for years, one who had actually danced in the Vatican for Pope Paul. I began to understand the connection between heart and soul because my heart would hear a piece. It still does every day. It still does. I will hear a piece and I will close my eyes and I will see a dance. And it doesn't have to be a perfect dance. It doesn't have to be on point. It doesn't have to be a gold medal. It just is praise. It's just give myself to him fully, even with my body which in so many cultures, bodies are seen as sort of extraneous. You know, I don't know where they think we'd live if we didn't have bodies, but that's on the other side, I think. But it's a very interesting art form. And I've, I've done it in universities. I've done it everywhere to pr- just to praise him. So that's how that came about. With my connection to different groups, I was invited places like in California and uh, Ottawa. I've been to Nebraska. I've been, uh, God has taken me a lot of different places to, to share that art. To God, we are all on point. We're all gold medalists. We are all absolutely every single one of us. Our pictures on his refrigerator, no matter what our gift is. The church seems to have embraced music and worship in music, but sure. we seem to have lost connection with a lot of the other arts, with uh, with painting, with sculpture, with, with dance. Correct. Why do you think that is? Well, I could tell you the age of existentialism and people like Immanuel Kant, who convinced the world that the uh, mind was really all that mattered. And then along came some people and said, well, okay, we can connect the soul to that. When I was doing my master's degree, I did my master's degree in this on the evolution and dissolution of sacred dance. And people like Isadora Duncan and some of the very famous modern dance artists were doing this in the 30s and the 40s because they realized the soul connection with the movement pieces. And I did a lot of studying of their work and a lot of studying of of what they had brought forth. Now, they were primarily modern dancers. They were trained dancers. They were, some were ballet. Those people already had a troupe that was dance trained. So I think as I studied, what I discovered was the body became something dirty as we began to look in different religious traditions, especially women's bodies. Oh, my, my, my. So we didn't want to see bodies. I I don't know how they expected us to get to church. (laughs) I really don't. But in my heart, I knew that was not true because, see, now, guess what? I was already very practiced at dismissing world messages in favor of God's call. So I knew. And yet, uh, my first church, or the one of the first churches I did it in was a church uh, my husband and I attended in Golden. And I, I wrote a story about this, Rod, not too long ago, where I had gone up to the pastor. Now, this is 25 30 years ago, I'd gone up to the pastor and I said, gosh, pastor, you know, what do you think about us dancing in church? And he honestly looked at me like I had two heads and one was on backwards. He was completely stunned by the question. So what do you mean? 
And I said, well, you know, there is such a thing as praise dance, sacred dance. And we had a contemporary service. So the music was it was just perfect for it. However, I will say that I've danced also to hymns and, and even psalms and scripture verses. So he said, absolutely not. The, no, the leadership will never go for this. So I said, okay, because I'd already been trained by my mentors, see, to never burn a bridge. You don't make adversaries. You say, okay, and submit to the leadership of the church. So I just kind of went off and said, okay, but I formed a little team and we started dancing in places around the cities. And then one day I was going out in that church. I was going out of service and the pastor came up to me. He said, can I talk to you? Can I talk to you? I said, yes, of course. He said, I was at a funeral yesterday and I saw what you're talking about. It was a woman and her three daughters who danced to lift you up on eagle's wings to say goodbye to her father, their grandfather. And he said, oh, I understand now. Let's get it going. So we got it going. And the first, the first time we did it in that church, he came to every rehearsal. <laughs> I don't know what he thought we were going to do, but he came to every rehearsal for the approval, you see. Again, the approval. And we danced for many years there. And in fact, one of the funniest stories, Ron, I'll tell you about this church is, um, I won't name the denomination, and uh, my some of my teammates called them the Frozen Chosen, which I, I never adopted, but I thought was kind of cute. But there was a gentleman there that would call me up and say, I see you guys are in the bulletin for dance this week. And I'd say, that's right. And he'd say, well, I won't be there because I think that's awful. And I don't think it belongs on the altar. So again, you see, Rod, that message, don't belong, don't belong. I said, well, I'm sure sorry you feel that way. And I sure would buy you a cup of coffee or a glass of wine or whatever. I'd buy you dinner if you would sit and tell me how you feel and why. He said, nope, it's just not biblical. No, it's sin. So, all right. So that particular week, we, we were dancing to a song called Praise Him with the Dance. And it was four women singing and four women dancing. And we had big flowing white dresses. And part of it was a they had brought in an Irish fiddle player to do a bridge of Lord of the Dance in the middle of this song. Well, I was the Irish dancer and one of my other friends had taken some Irish dance. So we taught on this bridge, we taught a real step. The Irish people, Irish dancers out there know what I'm talking about. But it was so fast and the footwork was so fun. And we did a big turn at the end. And I got to tell you, when we turned around, that congregation were on their feet and they were clapping and they were joyful. And I thought, they're either happy or they're going to come after us. <laughs> turned out they were just delighted. So we never had trouble after that. It was praise him in a dance, and it was Lord of the Dance was the bridge with a fiddle, and I was right at home. Of course, one of the common themes that we keep coming back to is that theme of acceptance, where especially in those early years, there was no acceptance for you. What have you done in the meantime to actually help others understand that there is acceptance in Jesus? My mantra is I didn't come here to preach to the choir. I came to call those who thought they'd never be invited to sing. And so I think my first book, Dolores Like the River, which was, a, which was a bestseller for a while, talks about that. And so in my words, 
in my gifts for words, in my blogs, in my podcasts. I give people that information that you are accepted, but you see a cradle Christian like my husband, who was born into the church in uh, Oklahoma. It's hard for him to talk to an unbeliever who's been in the depths of darkness as I was. It's not hard for me because I'm authentic. Yeah, dude, I've been there. I understand how you feel. Yeah, I know it seems like you don't want anything to do with you, doesn't it? And then I just tell them my story. They don't have to accept Jesus right there because that's not my business. My business is to tell my story. But I do it and I say, no one can argue with that truth. They weren't there. They don't know. But more times than not, when I'm at a book selling, a signing or something, I'll have somebody come up to me and say, um, I don't believe in your Jesus. I don't think he's all that good. And uh, yeah, it's a crutch. All the things that we get as Christians now. And instead of taking that as a rejection now, here's the difference with the Holy Spirit. I take that as an invitation. Not to proselytize, not to evangelize. You know, as Christians, we are all evangelizing. One way or another. We are witnessing one way or another. But I take it as an invitation to say, here's my card. My email's on there. Let me know what you think of this book. And I have had some wonderful responses to people who just say, I love the story. That's an open door. Where they go from there, well, that's God's business. But that's what I do, Rod. And the second book was called Jesus in Shorts. And it's 25 short stories of life-changing Jesus moments. And again, it's moments about failing, losing my temper at an airport or being unhappy with somebody for something, talking about the human frailties, the flaws, the blemishes, the pimples, and saying, yeah, I fall more than I'll ever fly, but you know what? He's got me. And and so that I, that was a really fun story of, of that one. A young woman who was an unbeliever came up to me at a book signing a couple of years ago and said, oh, Jesus in shorts, that's real cute. Because the picture on the cover is is uh, some legs in shorts, not not a speedo rod. We are very modest, but um, <laughs> you know it's Abercrombie or whatever those are. And he's walking in water, and I wanted that purposefully, not walking on water. I know about his deity. I think most people do. I wanted folks to see his humanity. He's walking through that water. Uh, anyway, this young woman came up. She said, well, I would never buy this book, but I have an uncle who's a pastor, and uh, his birthday's tomorrow, and I'm kind of desperate, so I'll buy it. But first of all, I want to see if you're a good writer. I said, well, you know, that's up to you, love. So she sat down, and she said, can I read a story? I said, yeah, sit down, have a cup of coffee. So she did. And the particular story that she read was one about my life, Rod, and I'm going to tell you this. I am an elf. Yes, E-L-F, Elf. It's one of my ministries, which is a whole other thing God's called me to do. But in that story, I talk about wanting to hang up my elf shoes again, Ron. See the pattern? 
so many Christians had come at me and said, this is secular and you are disgracing this holiday. You are disgracing the cradle of the Lord. So I started thinking, oh dear, maybe I am. So I was going to hang up my elf shoes. I had a dream. I believe in dreams. And God said, no, you're going to honor your commitment to the uh, city planners there at Golden in Colorado. They're the ones that they're counting on you. And I happen to be the captain, Rod. I'm captain of the elves. So I got my little elves together and I thought, okay, fine. So I went in and got my little elf thing going on there. And I was saying, Lord, forgive me if I'm doing something wrong. I am so sorry. I, I don't mean to. I'm just keeping a commitment. Hey. And there was this little boy there and he came up to me and he kind of pulled on my elf, um, you know, tunic there and put his arms up for me to pick him up. Well, I turned around, you know, in this day and age, you turn around, you look at mom for that permission. But it was his grandmother and she, uh, you know, she she nodded. So I collected the little tyke and we danced together to the song, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. So at the end of the song, he fell asleep, you know, a little tiny guy. He fell asleep on my little elf shoulder there. And grandma came to get him and she said, thank you. I said, oh, it's, it's my privilege. She said, uh, this is his last Christmas. And I said, you know, I didn't quite know what to say. I said, what? She said, you have relaxed him and made him smile. And that's all we wanted for his Christmas. You see, he's dying. Now, he was almost eight, seven, eight years old, and he was the size of a maybe three or four-year-old. She told me that he had a heart problem that was congenital, and they couldn't fix him. And unless they got a donor in a couple of weeks, he wasn't going to make it. So she took that little kid from me, and she actually kissed me. And she said, thank you, Captain. Well, the captain couldn't quite get her elfism together, so I was having a hard time hanging on now. And so my first lieutenant came up and said, hey, captain, let's go out to the parade. I said, no, not right now. Y'all go ahead. I'll meet you there. And I went out and I cried behind the building. And I said, God, why? You know, I know we're not supposed to ask why, but what? This little guy's going to die, God. And uh he told me in that basement or in that in that back alley that day that even though people thought what I was doing was awful, I was doing his work. I was helping a child to smile, a child who hurt, a child who probably didn't make it. I didn't see him the next year, so I don't know. And it wasn't me that was in the elf suit. If you'll forgive this, if you think it's it's not religious, it was Christ, you see. Christ was the captain of the elves that day. And he was helping to keep comfortable a little boy who was on his way to a bigger parade than what we had planned that day. And the look on his grandma's face, and I'm a grandmother too, the look on her face of just Peace, reconciliation, resignation, submission, but joy, which is something that little family hadn't had for long. So that's another way I share God's love in a silly little costume as an elf. The woman who was reading the, the, book, the story started crying. 
And she looked over at me and she said, I will take three copies of this book, one for my uncle, one for don't sign the name, and one for me. She emailed me a few months later and told me she was beginning to investigate this Jesus guy. I'm sure that by now my listeners have come to the understanding that you are a very gifted lady. I, I mentioned at the start, author, podcaster, yeah. and, and and all these different things, dancer, yeah. and, and people have come to understand that. I'm wondering for you, who has battled with acceptance, yeah. when did it begin to dawn on you that these gifts and talents came from a loving God who wanted to pour his blessings into you? So when I first knew my gifts were from God, well, I think when I first knew that the dancing was from God was when I stood on a, a national competition stage in my late 50s as an Irish step dancer and took a gold. <laughs> that had to be God, dude. <laughs> I was older than everybody there. Um, no, that's a joke. But I think just the fire in the belly. The fire in the belly to write that blog, the fire in the belly to write that story, the fire in the belly to give birth to two books, the fire in the belly to continue to dance, and that those gifts would not be denied by anyone. And I think that was my realization that I, I, I am gifted, but no more than you, my friend, no more than any of you listeners. Please hear me when I tell you, you are gifted, you are an artist, you're created in the image of the greatest, the greatest creator, the greatest artist. And I think I began to know it as he began to open the doors, but probably even before the fire in the belly. And when also I saw him minister through sacred dance to people who were hurting and would come up to me and say, thank you. That helped me. And that's uncomfortable for me, Rod. I'm going to tell you that right now. It's uncomfortable for somebody to come up and say, oh, thank you. That was so beautiful. I want to say, how do you do this? I'm just the canvas. Jesus is the artist. <laughs> We've seen some glimpses of what life is like for you now. But I'm wondering, as we mm -hmm. we look in those early years and, yeah. and how difficult it was for you to, to now, what does life look like for you today? Today, it looks like a way to understand that I'm not perfect and I will make mistakes, but I have a place to go where I can say, I'm sorry. Today, it looks like a roadmap that changes every day, which is brilliant. I love that. God knows that I'm probably a little ADHD or something. I get bored really easily, but that's what it looks like. It looks like today, the hope. today the ability to use the gift wherever I go, even if it's just to look at somebody and smile and say, hey, how are you doing? That's what it looks like, Rhonda. It, it, it's a hopeful day, and it has been for many, many years. And our family still suffers under the weight of uh, alcoholism and that disease, and, and we still suffer under many of the psychological issues that are, are bound up with that. Today, it looks like an opportunity to walk into rooms where there are other children of alcoholics recovering and take a speaking podium and give them my story. Today, it looks like purpose. You mentioned earlier that you're 70, and you've yeah. waited until you turn 70 to actually start releasing a podcast. Tell me about your <laughs> podcast. My podcast is named after my blog, Living What You're Given. 
at every age and every stage. Because accepting where we are, accepting who we are, accepting whose we are, to me, is the way we live what we've been given. I have no control over what I was born into. I have no control over anything, most things, that are going on in my life. But to live each day that I've been given, to live the gifts I've been given in a way to show glory to the great gift giver. That's what that podcast is about. And right now we're in a series called Pivoting. And I'm talking to people because in COVID, we've had to pivot uh, again and again and again. And we're going to pivot some more, I'm sure. But the fact is, people have been pivoting for many, 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 many centuries, however long since God has put us here. And I'm talking to people right now who have pivoted in and out of some pretty tough stuff in the effort, making an effort to give people hope. I don't preach. I don't teach. Every now and then I tell a story, but it's it's there. Just live what you give it. Find a way to live those days every day that you've been given. Whether you like what's going on or not, whether you agree with what's going on or not, you still, you're breathing. It's a lot more than a lot of people doing right now. And our gift, they always say, life is uh, God's gift to you and the way you live it is your gift to him. And I think that's probably true. And I waited till I was 70. And I'm going to tell you a little why, just a tiny why. First of all, I never even thought about doing a podcast. I had done some radio when I was in Denver, about two and a half years. But I was busy selling books, doing events, doing speaking engagements, teaching dance, choreographing musicals for churches, things like that. Podcast, you're kidding. Well, boy, here comes COVID. And what's out? E, all the above. You're not going to do any of that. So I got hooked up with my friend, with our friend, Eric Nevins. And he had interviewed me uh, because he wanted to hear about the life of an elf and other things. My books, too. He is a blessed, a dear gift. But he said to me, I think you might want to consider doing this. So I got a hold of him. At the beginning of COVID, and I started going to classes and to school and hanging out with y'all, God kept throwing that 70 out going, hey, this is what I want you to do. Because I want you to tell older people, you are not done until I say you're done. And you can find a way to do stuff. If people want to get a hold of your books, read your blog, get in touch with you through your podcast, where's the easiest place for them to go? Go to my website. It's called Laura L. Padgett. P-A-D-G-E-T-T dot com. And if you go there, there's a contact tab, and that will give you my email address. And if you want to hear any of the podcast episodes, that's where that is also. You know, you can find me on Facebook, my author page. I have a personal page. I have an author page. I have emails. And uh, that's where people can find me. You can order books on Amazon, or you can go to my website. My blog, I try to write once a month. That's what I do. And I'll put a a link to the website in the show notes at bleedingdaylight.net so that people can get that easily. It really has been a delight to speak with you. Thank you (laughs) so much for your time today on Bleeding Daylight. Well, and thank you. Thank you for listening to Bleeding Daylight. Please help us to shine more light into the darkness by sharing this episode with others. 
For further details and more episodes, please visit bleedingdaylight.net.